often have you heard that science and religion are in conflict and that science presents a real picture of the world while religion is just emotional or fanciful. But can a person who believes in God also embrace science? Today, you'll hear Dr. William Lane Craig give evidence that science and religion are not necessarily at odds. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Dr. Craig joined Pat at the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and today we'll bring you part two of his fascinating presentation on science and religion. And by the way, the entire conference featuring Dr. William Lane Craig is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. At evidenceandanswers.org, not only will you find the conference, you'll find articles, books, interviews, and past radio shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And now, Pat Zuckerman presents Dr. William Lane Craig with part two of Science and Religion. Our discovery of the fine-tuning of the universe is like someone trudging through the Gobi Desert and coming around the sand dune, suddenly being confronted with the Empire State Building. We would rightly dismiss as insane the suggestion that it just happened to be there by chance, that the wind and the weather just assembled the sand grains in the form of the Empire State Building. And we would find equally mad the idea that any arrangement of sand particles at that location is equally improbable, and therefore there's nothing here to be explained. Now, why is this? What is the difference between the skyscraper and just some arrangement of sand grains? Well, it is because the complexity which the skyscraper exhibits is absent from a random arrangement of sand. But why should the complexity of the skyscraper strike us as special? Well, John Leslie, who is the contemporary philosopher who has occupied himself most with this question, says it's because there is an apparent explanation of the complex skyscraper which is not suggested by just a random arrangement of sand grains, namely intelligent design. And in the same way, Leslie concludes, the fine tuning of the initial conditions of the universe for intelligent life points to the apparent explanation of intelligent design. Thus, science can both falsify and verify the claims of religion. Number three, science encounters metaphysical problems which religion can help to solve. Science has an insatiable thirst for explanation, but eventually science reaches the limits of its explanatory ability. For example, in explaining why various things in the universe exist, science ultimately confronts the question of why the universe itself exists. Now, notice this doesn't need to be a question about the temporal origin of the universe. Even if space-time is beginningless and endless, we may still ask the question, why does space-time exist? The physicist David Park reflects, as to why there is space-time, that appears to be a perfectly good scientific question, but nobody knows how to answer it. Here, theology can help. Traditional theists conceive of God as a necessary being whose non-existence is impossible, and God is the creator of the contingent world of space and time. And so the person who believes in God 
has the resources to slake science's thirst for ultimate explanation. And we can present this reasoning in the form of a simple argument. It would go like this. One, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. And that explanation could either be in the necessity of its own nature or in some external cause. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. Two, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe exists. And from those three premises, it follows that four, therefore, the explanation of the existence of the universe is God. Now, in my published work, such as my book On Guard, I've defended this argument in greater detail, and I would refer you to the discussion there. But I think I've said enough to illustrate how theology can address the metaphysical questions that science encounters, but which it lacks the resources to answer. Number four, religion can help to adjudicate between scientific theories. Religion can help to adjudicate between scientific theories. Lawrence Sklar, who is a prominent philosopher of science, has remarked, and I quote, the adoption of one scientific theory rather than another sometimes, in very crucial cases indeed, rests as much upon philosophical presuppositions as it does upon the hard data, end quote. Particularly in cases where two conflicting theories are empirically equivalent, that is to say you cannot decide between them on the basis of the evidence, in cases like that, metaphysical concerns, including theological concerns, come into play. And an excellent example here is Albert Einstein's special theory of relativity. Now there are two ways to interpret the mathematical equations of special relativity. On Einstein's interpretation, there is no absolute now in the world. Rather, what is now is relative to different observers in motion. If you and I are moving with respect to each other, then what is now for you is not now for me. The now is relative to moving observers. By contrast, on H.A. Lorenz's interpretation, there is an absolute now in the world, but we just can't be sure which events in the world are happening now because movement affects our measuring instruments. Moving clocks run slow, and moving measuring rods shrink in the direction of motion. The Einsteinian and the Lorentzian interpretations are empirically equivalent. There's no experiment that you could conduct to decide between them. But I want to argue this morning that if God exists, then Lorentz was right. And here's my argument. Number one, if God exists, then God is in time. If God exists, then God is in time. And this is true because God is really related to the world as cause to effect. But a cause must exist either before or simultaneous at the same time as its effect. So since God is causally related to the world, God must be in time. Number two, if God is in time, then a privileged observer exists. 
If God is in time, then a privileged observer exists. Since God transcends the world and is the cause of everything in the world, his perspective on the world is privileged. He is not just one of the other relatively moving observers in the world. Rather, he transcends the world, and his perspective is therefore the true perspective. Therefore, if God is in time, a privileged observer exists, namely God. Three, if a privileged observer exists, then an absolute now exists. If a privileged observer exists, then an absolute now exists. Since God is a privileged observer, his now is privileged. And thus there is an absolute now, just as Lorenz claimed, namely it is God's now. What is present for God is truly present. Now this is a very startling conclusion indeed, but I'm firmly convinced that if God exists, then a Lorenzian rather than an Einsteinian interpretation of special relativity is correct. And it's hard to imagine how religion could have any greater relevance to science than this, to show that one theory or interpretation is wrong and that another one is right. Number five, religion can augment the explanatory power of science. One of the pillars of the contemporary scientific view of the world is the evolution of biological uh, complexity from more primitive life forms. Unfortunately, the current neo-Darwinian synthesis seems to be explanatorily deficient in its explanation of the gradual rise of biological complexity. In the first place, the neo-Darwinian mechanisms of random mutation and natural selection work far too slowly to produce unaided uh, sentient or conscious life. In their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, Barrow and Tipler list 10 steps in the evolution of Homo sapiens, including such steps as the development of a DNA-based genetic code, the origin of mitochondria, the origin of photosynthesis, the development of aerobic respiration, and so on and so forth. 10 steps in the course of human evolution, each of which, each of which is so improbable that before it would have occurred, the sun would have ceased to be a main sequence star and would have incinerated the earth. They report, and I quote, there has developed a general consensus among evolutionists that the evolution of intelligent life, comparable in information processing ability to that of Homo sapiens, is so improbable that it is unlikely to have occurred on any other planet in the entire visible universe. End quote. But if that is the case, then one cannot help but wonder why, apart from a commitment to naturalism, should we think that it evolved unaided on this planet? Secondly, random mutation and natural selection seem to have inherent limits that preclude their accounting for biological complexity observed today. Some evolutionary biologists will appeal to the ability of bacteria, insects, and rodents to develop immunity to drugs or poisons through random mutation and selection as a proof of the unlimited potential of these neo-Darwinian mechanisms. But in his most recent book, The Edge of Evolution, Michael Behe argues that the evidence of organisms' development of drug resistance 
is itself a powerful indication of the limits of random mutation and natural selection to produce evolutionary change. For example, malaria and the human immune system have been waging war against each other for over 10,000 years. Unfortunately for us, the malarial parasite mutates very rapidly, and so it's been able to develop resistance to every drug that we've hurled at it. Simple, single-point mutations uh, in the DNA are enough for it to develop resistance to certain drugs. Now, on the other hand, there is also tremendous selective pressure for the human immune system to develop some sort of defense against malaria, but it hasn't done so. Instead, what has happened is that a mutation has occurred in the human respiratory system, which makes some people immune to malaria, namely sickle cell hemoglobin, which produces sickle cell anemia. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Despite its incredible mutational rate that has enabled malaria to overcome every drug that we've thrown at it, malaria has never, in all those thousands of years and trillions of mutations, been able to overcome sickle hemoglobin. Molecular biology reveals why. Resistance to a drug can occur as a result of a simple, single-point mutation. But overcoming sickle hemoglobin would require either multiple simultaneous mutations or else a sequence of mutations occurring blindly. And both of these are simply too improbable to have occurred. HIV provides another case study. The malarial parasite is a single cell organism which mutates very rapidly, but viruses Viruses mutate 10,000 times more rapidly than cells. In the last 50 years alone, the AIDS virus has mutated as much as all of the cells in the entire history of the Earth that have ever existed upon the Earth. It has tried out every possible mutation up to six-point simultaneous mutations in the last few decades. It's become resistant to every drug that we've thrown at it. But, Behe says, through all that, there have been no significant basic biochemical changes in the virus at all. On a functional biochemical level, the virus has been a complete stick in the mud. Behe concludes that the studies of malaria and HIV provide by far the best direct evidence of what the Darwinian mechanisms can do. He says, here we have genetic studies over thousands upon thousands of generations of trillions and trillions of organisms and little of biochemical significance to show for it. Our experience with HIV and malaria gives good reason to think that Darwinism doesn't do much, even with billions of years and all the cells in the world at its disposal." End quote. Thus, Far from providing evidence of the power of the Darwinian mechanisms to produce macroevolutionary change, our experience with drug resistance in bacteria and viruses reveals the severe limits of those mechanisms. Now, Behe agrees that the evidence for common descent seems compelling, but he says, except at life's periphery, the evidence for a pivotal role for random mutation is 
terrible, end quote. On the other hand, Behe says, there is a familiar explanation which is adequate to account for the evolution of biological complexity. One which in other contexts we accept unhesitatingly, intelligent design. He says, life on Earth at its most fundamental level, in its most fundamental components, is the product of intelligent activity. The gradual evolution of biological complexity is better explained if there exists an intelligent cause behind the process rather than just the blind mechanisms alone. And thus the theist has the explanatory resources available to him which the naturalist lacks. Finally, number six, science can establish a premise in an argument for a conclusion having religious significance. Science can establish a premise in an argument for a conclusion having religious significance. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas always assumed the eternity of the universe in his arguments for God's existence. He said to assume that the universe began to exist made things too easy for the theist. He wrote, if the world and motion have a beginning, some cause must clearly be posited for this origin of the world and of motion. Moreover, there was simply no empirical way during the Middle Ages to prove the past finitude of the world. But with the application of Einstein's general theory of relativity to cosmology and the discovery of the expansion of the universe in the early 20th century, contemporary science appears to have dropped into the lap of the natural theologian precisely that premise which had been missing in a successful argument for God's existence. For now, we may argue as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And that second premise, that the universe began to exist, is a religiously neutral statement that can be found in almost any textbook on astronomy and astrophysics. Yet it puts the atheist in a very difficult position. For as Anthony Kenny says, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, if he is an atheist, has to believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. And surely that is metaphysically impossible. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? It's plausible that there must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. And from the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unimaginable power which created the universe. Now, all of this is not to make some simplistic and naive statement like science proves that God exists. No, but it is to say that science can establish the truth of a premise in an argument leading to a conclusion that has theological significance. So, in summary then, we've seen six ways in which science and religion are relevant to each other. One, science, or rather religion furnishes the conceptual framework in which science can flourish. Two, science can both falsify and verify claims of religion. Three, science encounters metaphysical problems which religion can help to solve. Four, religion can help to adjudicate between competing scientific theories. 
Five, religion can augment the explanatory power of science. And six, science uh, can establish a premise in an argument for a conclusion having religious significance. So, in conclusion, then, I think we've seen that science and religion should not be thought of as foes or as mutually irrelevant. Rather, we've seen a number of ways in which science and theology can fruitfully interact with each other. And that is why, after all, there is such a flourishing dialogue going on between science and theology today. Well, I think we've got some time for some questions. Well, um, I was encouraged to hear you say that there actually is a lot of dialogue going on. Mm -hmm. I think from the perspective of, of lay people, I think, yeah, it seems like there's not. But I'm wondering, on, on one aspect, if do you think, you, you quoted Stephen Hawking several times. Yes. And I, I know that his most recent uh, book uh, basically argued that science has gotten to a point where it can at least equivocally state that there is no need for yes. the existence of God to explain the universe. Yes. My, I wasn't convinced by that argument, but I wonder if it's a reaction, if it's a scientific uh, cultural reaction to what you describe as sort of the growing dialogue that is sort of starting to break down the myth mm -hmm. of the clash. That may be the case. Certainly Hawking has not been involved in this dialogue in a positive way. He has been more involved in a negative way, uh, similarly with Richard Dawkins. But if you would like to see a response to Hawking's new book, The Grand Design, look at my website, reasonablefaith.org, and there's a section of the site called Question of the Week. And Question of the Week 180 and 181 are my response or review of the Hawking Mladenov book, The Grand Design. And I think you'll find that when rightly understood, the book actually is very supportive of the arguments that I presented here. They refer to the fine-tuning of the universe as almost miraculous and desperately try to explain it away through postulating a kind of many worlds hypothesis. The beginning of the universe they also affirm in their model but he misconstrues the origin of the universe out of nothing by equating nothing with empty space filled with energy. And that is equivocal. That is not what nothing means. Nothing means non-being, the absence of anything. And so people like Hawking are just outrageously philosophically naive in equivocating on words like nothing. His model does nothing to show how the universe could have originated out of nothing because the quantum vacuum, or this empty space filled with energy, is certainly not nothing. So take a look at questions 180 and 181. The neo-Darwinian paradigm is still the standard view taught in universities today, and I think, frankly, it is because there isn't a better alternative. If there were a better alternative, then I think they would jump for it, because these explanatory mechanisms seem to just be inadequate to explain biological complexity. But in the absence of a better naturalistic alternative, these naturalists aren't going to abandon the neo-Darwinian theory. Do you see what I mean? They, they won't abandon it until there is a better naturalistic alternative to jump to. I think it's highly improbable that they would embrace intelligent design because that smacks of theism. So these naturalistic scientists 
are looking for a naturalistic explanation of biological complexity, and the best they've got is random mutation and natural selection, regardless of how improbable it is. It, it's, it's all you've got. We, as Christians, are ardent supporters of science and the understanding of the empirical world, and we have the philosophical basis for doing science, and that's why science was birthed in the Christian West. So, Yes, I think this will be something we can offer of a positive nature to the naturalistic scientists to say, come over and join us. The value of apologetics, just showing a university audience that a Christian can stand and go toe to toe with one of their professors and come out on top, gives to the Christian worldview a credibility that it wouldn't otherwise have so that it helps to foster a cultural context in which the gospel can still be heard as a credible option for people today. That was Dr. William Lane Craig discussing science and religion on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. Dr. Craig joined Pat Zucharin as part of the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and that conference is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. It was a very exciting conference. It featured topics like the existence of God, can we be good without God, the new atheist and their case against God, and God and the problem of evil. Download this conference and you'll take your study of these crucial topics to the next level. Go right now to evidenceandanswers.org. And we also invite you to support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world. Today, more than ever, people need biblical answers to their questions about God and His love for us and the evidence to support those answers. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And thank you so much. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.